Thank you all. Thank you very much for the enthusiastic reception. That's great to hear. Um, and it, I want you to know, it is my real pleasure to be here. As a business guy out there in the world, to be able to come here and try to be something of a sponge and soak up what y'all have, to soak up some of the spirit and the enthusiasm and the vigor and the grace that you all have, that's a privilege for me. I mean that as sincerely as I can demonstrate anything to you. It's a real privilege for me and I'll draw strength from it, not just tonight, uh, but as I, as I go forward after tonight because it, it encourages me and it inspires me. For, so thank you for the witness uh, that you're giving by being here either as faculty or students at Christendom. Um, I've come to speak to you today about defending the faith. Now I'm not a professor, I'm not a theologian, I'm a business guy. And I gather data and I try to make decisions based on that data. Now what do I mean by that? Well, a few years ago my daughter Elizabeth, she's 20 now, but when she was 15 I realized we weren't spending as much time together and I said, why don't you be my apprentice this summer? And she kind of rolled her eyes and said, okay, fine. So she came to work with me during the week. And, you know, because of the kind of work I do, she'd sit there and watch. She'd go to meetings with me. She'd see meetings. And then I'd take somebody to lunch. She'd go along with us. She'd see me reading the Wall Street Journal. She'd see me on the phone answering emails. She's watching all this. And at some point, she turned to me and said, Daddy, when do we make the money? And, and I, you know, it, I, it, was a, it was a profound question. I thought, well, what do I do that makes money? I mean, I, I do all this stuff. What is it that I do? And I realized part of what, what you do as an investor in business is you gather a lot of data and you try to assimilate it and you try to bring some kind of wisdom to it and make a prudent decision. And if you make a prudent decision, well, then that ends up being a good investment and if you make an imprudent decision people don't trust you with their money much longer. So that's sort of what I do and I, I mention that to you because I think just as we, we create wealth by, by gathering data and making informed prudent decisions, so do we live our lives and, and examine our faith and defend our faith and so that's the context of how I operate and how I'm going to address you tonight. So let's think. Tim mentioned uh, what, do, what do we mean uh, about that I'm going to speak on defending the faith. What do we mean by defending the faith? When I was a child, when I thought of defending the faith, I thought of some crusader on a horse, you know, going against uh, uh, the, the invaders of the Holy Land. That that's what a defender of the faith was. Now, that is defending the faith, but defending the faith is a lot broader than that. All of us are called to defend the faith. Most of us, at some time in our lives, if not frequently in our lives, will be called on to defend the faith. I'm sure some of you already have been called on to defend it. In the story I'm about to tell you, my opportunity to defend the faith came out of nowhere. It fell out of the sky. And this story is also an indication of the fact that sometimes God leads us into defending the faith by appealing to our curiosity and our sense of beauty. Because that's what caught my attention and what I'm about to tell you. When we speak of the faith, what are we talking about? You all study it. What is faith? We're taught that faith is a theological virtue. Like any virtue, therefore, it's an act that we decide to do with our free will. 
It, it, it is in exercising the virtues like that of faith that we fulfill our potential as human beings. That's the very root of the word virtue, ver, meaning man. Faith is something we decide to do. And like the other theological virtues, hope and love, the exercise of a theological virtue is something that draws us closer to God. So when we speak of a defense of the faith, we're really talking about the defense of a decision that we make, a decision to believe in something. And when you think about defending a decision that you've made, you usually think of giving a reason for that decision. And when you think of giving a reason, often, if you can, you'd like to provide evidence that supports your decision. So when we're engaged in presenting evidence of why we choose to believe in Jesus Christ, we're engaged in a defense of the faith. The faith is not the catechism per se. The faith is the decision to believe in Jesus Christ. Now, many of you may have been to the Holy Land. A year, a, a, about two years ago, I was there. I went into the tomb. In fact, I had a really special privilege. Holy Thursday night, starting at 8 o'clock, they closed the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And then they let eight of us in. And from 8 o'clock, Holy Thursday night, till 7 a.m., Good Friday morning, I was locked in at the tomb of Jesus Christ. All night. It's the first time I stayed up all night in 25 years. And you realize this is, this is where he was buried. And you go around the Holy Land, you see these places. This is where he was born. This is where his family lived in Nazareth. This is where the Sermon on the Mount was. And all of a sudden you realize, you know what? This, this is real stuff. And, and yeah, I remember we took my daughter around. Uh, she's now a junior in college, but we took her around a few years ago. We did the college trip looking at different places, and we combined it with our American history trip. So we went up the East Coast, and you, know, you go to Philadelphia and Boston and those places. You go into Philadelphia, you see Independence Hall, and you go in there where they signed the Declaration of Independence, and you, and you see the Liberty Bell, and you think, you know, this is, this is not just legend. This stuff really happened. When those people signed the Declaration of Independence... They were risking their lives. Many of them lost their lives when they signed that Declaration of Independence. This stuff really happened. Now, why, why does this matter? Well, because evidence matters. Evidence matters. Either it really happened or it's a legend. I've been to Minnesota. I've seen all their lakes. I know about Paul Bunyan and Babe the Blue Ox. I don't think Babe really made all the lakes. I think that's a legend. So the question is... That's a legend. Independence Hall is not a legend. Is Jesus Christ a legend? Or did this stuff happen? Christianity is not a philosophy. It's a relationship with a person. A person who we believe is God-made man. If this person did not exist or do what we think he did, the whole thing kind of crumbles. Which is why so many in the secular world are committed to disproving what he did. Evidence matters. It's not wholly dispositive in matters of faith. It's not wholly dispositive, but it does matter. One of the things I did when I was in Jerusalem, I visited Cardinal Martini, who was formerly the Cardinal from Milan. I don't know if any of you know who Cardinal Martini was or the role he may have played. We'll come back to him in a few moments. But he wanted to meet with me while I was in Jerusalem. And I'm going to tell you why in just a second. But first things first about this, this story 
of the adventure in defending the faith. First things first, we all know John was Jewish. John the Baptist was Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. And the first time I heard anything about the Bodmer Papyrus 14 and 15 was out of the mouth of a secular Jewish man from New York by the name of Harry Epstein. And when I say things fall out of the sky, that's what I mean. Things fall out of the sky from the places you least expect it. 25 years ago, Harry lived in Atlanta. That's where I'm from. And he did real estate deals with my father. So Harry moved back to New York at least 20 years ago. And he and my father stayed in very loose contact with one another. They'd speak by phone once a year. They kind of have an affection for each other, but they mutually irritate one another. So they only talk about once a year. And so one day in May 2006, Harry gave my father a call. And he said, Frank, that's my father's name also. He said, Frank, I know you and your family are interested in the Catholic Church and involved with it. Now, through my brother-in-law, this is Harry telling my father, through my brother-in-law, I was approached by some folks who were looking for funds to buy the oldest copy of the Lord's Prayer and give it to the Vatican. Are you interested? So, you know, my father, my brother, and I, we, got a, we have a wonderful privilege, um, and that is that we're approached all the time with various ideas, particularly ones involving charitable expenditures. And that is a privilege we have. We're not cynical about it, but we kind of have to develop a process to weed things out, because otherwise people are just coming all the time. My father said to Harry, I'll tell you what, Harry, put the information in a package, mail it to me, I'll take a look at it, and then get back to you. The next day, a priest shows up at my father's office. Having Father Richard Donahue, he drove over from Alabama, and he comes with a package in his hands. Now, anyone who's ever tried to make a sale to someone, you know what you want to do, get your foot in the door, right? So this priest is saying, okay, Harry's saying, you need to go see Frank. And so this priest comes. Unfortunately for Father Richard, my father is wise to these sorts of things. And so he told his secretary, go out and tell the priest that I'm unable to meet with him. Leave the package with me. So then he takes the package, he doesn't open it up, he writes a note and he says, Dear Harry, obviously my instructions were too complex. Here's your package back and he mailed it back to Harry without opening it. Now before you think my father is brusque, which he is a little bit, but before you do that, you gotta realize people, do, people pull this kind of thing a lot and my father knows Harry's modus operandi. He's onto Harry's game. He felt Harry was playing him a bit and Harry was playing him a bit. So, but my father does have a soft heart for the church. And so after sending the letter, I think he felt a little ashamed. He called me and said, hey, listen, I don't know what Harry's up to, but, but you know, why don't you check it out? And so yeah, see if you're interested. So I wasn't really interested in getting involved in another charitable undertaking, but I had a sense um, that it wouldn't hurt to give Harry a call and have him send me the information. So I gave him a call. And he proceeded to tell me. He said, yeah, I guess I irritated your father, didn't I? And I said, well, you know, maybe. But he, he repeated what he told my father with a few additional details. Harry indicated that he had a brother-in-law named Gary Krupp, who was working with the church on a number of projects. Gary's Jewish also. Gary had a foundation called the Pave the Way Foundation. And they set this thing up for the express purpose of cultivating relationships between various world religions. In particular, Gary had worked with the Vatican on a few projects in one of the last major audiences that Pope John Paul II had before he died. He welcomed a group of Jewish leaders to the Vatican. And people kind of wonder, wow, that's, that's sort of interesting. Here he is 
you know, close to death, but he's meeting this group. And y'all may not remember this, but immediately prior to that visit, toward the end of John Paul II's life, there had been an unfortunate setback in the relationship between the church and Israel. There had been some comments that Pope John Paul II had made that had been misinterpreted by some people, and it kind of, it became a little bit of a diplomatic mess. And so Gary and his group went there to meet the Holy Father and express their support and friendship of him. So anyway, that's, Harry's filling me in on this, and I told Harry, you know, it's not really up our alley, but I'll take a look at it, and Harry said he'd send me the packet. But Harry didn't send me the package. I received a package from Father Richard Donahue, the priest who'd shown up at my father's door. And the package was this glossy book put together by Christie's. Y'all know, may know Christie's and Sotheby's are the two big auction houses that auction off great, you know, the, the greatest pieces of art. And, you know, I, I, I looked at it and then I realized, I guess for the price they were asking for this particular money, I guess it would be a really glossy book. It was more money that they were asking for this than, than I'd ever paid for anything in my life. And I told Harry when I talked to him on the phone, I said, you know, I've been engaged in charitable stuff, but, I, but I've never done anything like this. And he said, well, Father Donahue's traveling around the country and he's raising money. Maybe if you could just help him with a little bit, then others can, can help contribute. Now this book, I started taking a look at it. This book, it was about something I'd never heard about. The book told about the Bodmer Papyrus 14 and 15. Now, I don't know about y'all, I barely knew what papyrus meant. I mean, I knew it was the root of the word paper, but I didn't really know. I had no idea what the Bodmer Papyrus 14 and 15 were. Well, this book said it was 51 leaves of papyrus found in the 1950s in Upper Egypt in what was believed to be the ruins of a monastery. It contained the oldest copy of the Gospel of Luke and John in existence. It included the oldest copy of the Lord's Prayer in the world. It was one of the first codices made because prior to that time, so much was written on scrolls. It was one of the first books ever made. And scriptural scholars had testified that this papyrus was at last, in their words, at last the key to understanding the text. The text meaning the New Testament. And then I read an accompanying letter from Father Donahue where he spoke about the unique opportunity being presented. Father threw out all the big guns. He said, Cardinal Jean-Louis Turan, the archivist and librarian of the Apostolic Library, when made aware of the document, immediately went to Pope Benedict XVI. They both agreed that the Apostolic Library must have this document. And he quoted Cardinal Turan. Cardinal Turan wrote to him, in light of the importance of this manuscript for the Catholic Church and all of Christianity, its purchase and presentation to Pope Benedict XVI, who himself is deeply appreciative of its invaluable nature, would be a gift of inestimable worth. This manuscript would then be preserved and further studied at the Vatican Library. And Father went on to assure me that Archbishop Celestine Migliori, who's the, who was the Apostolic Nuncio of the UN, was desirous of our obtaining the document. And he said he'd met with Archbishop Sambi, he's our papal nuncio now, as many of you may know, who informed him uh, that Father had informed this, the nuncio of the lack of progress on the project, and the nuncio emphasized the urgency of it. He said, yeah, Father Donahue had said, well, Archbishop, I've got to go to Jerusalem on a pilgrimage. And the nuncio said to him, Father Donahue, Jerusalem will always be there. The purchase of this document is the most important work of the church at this time. The nuncio told him, we have to have this manuscript. Many years ago, there was a chance 
that the church could obtain the cynical. One of the holy sites the church does not have in the, in the Holy Land is, is a possession of the cynical. He said, we lost that chance, and, and I don't know if we'll get it back. He said, it's the same with the Bodmer Papyri. This is history in the making, and you need to get this manuscript and get it presented to the Holy Father. We must avoid another mistake like with the cynical. I thought, wow, this is kind of interesting stuff. It's still not up my alley, but it's kind of interesting. And I wondered, what in the world did it have to do with me? I mean, I knew they wanted some money, but I just thought, how does this fit in to my vocation? And then I got a call from Father Richard. He told me he'd been praying feverishly about the project, but he'd not had much success in raising money for it. Now, I, need, I have to keep the amount that was paid for the papyrus confidential because that's what the Vatican wanted to do. But I'll tell you, when I asked Father how much he'd raised in the last several months, he gave me a number that was about 1% of what was needed. I thought, 1%? Harry said I was going to give a part of this. What is 1%? What is that all about? And Father told me just a few days before he'd been with Cardinal Turan on the phone, he said he'd been conducting a retreat in Alabama when they yanked him out of the retreat. They told him Cardinal Turan was on the phone. And Cardinal Turan said to Father Richard, I'm in the room with the Holy Father, Pope Benedict XVI, who wants to express his sincere desire to acquire this papyrus. And I told Father, sheesh. I said, I've been involved in a number of endeavors on behalf of the church. This is not up my alley, and I've got to give it a lot of thought and prayer. He said, do you mind if the nuncio calls you? I said, okay, that's fine. And I'd met the nuncio a couple of months before. And so the Thursday before the Memorial Day weekend, my brother and I, we got, a, we got business clients. We're taking, this sounds like heavy duty, but we're taking business clients to play golf. And it's in an exclusive club. And the one rule they have at these places is you don't use cell phones. So right as I'm about to get out, I get a cell phone call from the nuncio. So I got to sit in the hot car in 100 degrees, and I'm talking to the nuncio. And... You know, he's, he's a wonderful man. I don't know if, I, I'm, I'm sure uh, President O'Donnell's had a chance to meet him, but he's a wonderful man. He said, Mr. Hanna. I thought, he's, he's got a reputation as a gregarious, intelligent guy. Uh, and he says, Mr. Hanna. He said, you know how interested the Holy Father is in acquiring this papyrus. And then he conveyed his own interest. See, prior to our current nuncio being in Washington, D.C., he was the nuncio to Israel. He was the nuncio in the Holy Land. And so this piece of our Christian heritage was incredibly important to him, and he wanted to emphasize how important it was to the church. I told him, you know, Your Excellency, I understand the magnitude of the project. It's not the type of thing I typically do. But I said, I will give it a good deal of prayer, and I'll get back to you as quick as I can. I actually, honestly, and I'm, not, I'm a little bit ashamed to say this, I kind of felt cornered because um, I, I, I didn't think I wanted to do this, and I felt like I was getting a lot of pressure put on me. But I, I tried to make a good faith effort at determining and praying, you know, is God really calling me to this? I was intrigued by it, but that's not enough, just being kind of curious. But a month prior to this, I'd been on retreat. Every year I take a three-day silent retreat. And one of the things I've been given a lot of thought about during my retreat was the liturgy of the church. You know, the liturgy is one of the primary defenses of the faith. It's one of the primary reasons for our faith. The liturgy is the action by which God makes himself physically present to us here on this earth. Now, as a businessman, I've always focused on the most effective ways of using leverage and making investments. When one uses leverage prudently, wow, your return on investment doesn't just increase, it soars. And so over the last 20 years, I put a lot of thought into the right use of leverage when we're doing apostolic work. And I concluded the following. 
I think man's purpose is to know, love, and serve the Lord. And we serve him by bringing others to him. For the only tragedy, the only tragedy in this life is a soul that's not in communion with God. And the best path to communion with God is Jesus Christ. And the best path to Jesus Christ is through his holy bride, the Catholic Church. And thus, I'm seeking to strengthen and revitalize the church and our society by promoting those points of maximum leverage that can be used to help build the kingdom of God. Now, I know that sound, kind of sounds like a mouthful. I'm an analytical guy, and that's sort of how I process strategy. But I think a key point for, for the kind of shift I'm talking about in our society is candidly a strengthening and renewal of the liturgy. And so I'm reflecting during my retreat, I realized that the one thing that will be here until the end of time is the liturgy. And at that point, I decided, you know, I'm going to be open to things. This is during my retreat. I'm going to be open to things that God's putting in my path regarding the liturgy. Maybe this papyrus is one of those things. And sure enough, I came to find out the papyrus was actually believed to, to, to have come from a codex that was used in liturgical celebrations. So I prayed about whether I should proceed with it. And one of the things I've learned about discernment, and this is, so many of you are going through a process of discernment right now, is that once you've made the decision, if you've sincerely prayed about it and sought God's will, then the resolution that you reach can leave you with a sense of peace. Not, not always, but, but often it leaves you with that sense of peace. And so that's how I analyze this decision. And, and in the reverse, I ask myself, boy, if you fail to at least try to purchase this papyrus, this defense of the faith, do you think you'll have peace in your heart? I was concerned about the price. Frankly, I had no idea whether the price was that was asked was, being, was reasonable or not. I, I did some research on it. I found out how much did Bill Gates pay for the, the codex of Leonardo da Vinci? How much do people pay for Gutenberg Bibles, for a Shakespeare, you know, original folio? What did people pay for John Lennon's, you know, writings of, of the songs that he wrote? I mean, these are famous things that go, none of them were really comparable. You know, I thought about what people pay for one Picasso. This was not the only ancient papyrus of the Bible. But then I thought to myself, now, Frank, there's one God in the universe. He came to earth one time. He gave us one prayer to pray, the Lord's Prayer. And this is the oldest copy of that prayer in the universe. And I also thought, you believe that the Catholic Church is the bride of Christ and the repository of the faith. And if there's one place in the world this papyrus needs to be, it's with the Catholic Church. And so when I viewed it in that manner, I knew that given the fact that I, didn't, I had the funds to purchase it, I thought, you know, I will not have light and joy and peace in my heart if I don't at least give this a shot. And so we decided to do it. And it took us six months to get this thing purchased. I worked with a buddy of mine from Washington, D.C., who's was one of the top lawyers in the country. And, you know, he worked on this pro bono for free with me. And, you know, we, we thought about how we deal with Christie's. You know what's interesting? Even when you're dealing with somebody in London, even though you speak the same language, English, uh, it's amazing how much you can get bogged down in the cultural differences between the U.S. and the U.K. And we went back and forth with all kind of business terms, letters of credits and notes and guarantees and the role of the Vatican in it. And, you know, there was a good bit of rumbling in the academic community because a lot of academics were concerned, what's going to happen with this papyrus? Is some private person going to get it and close it off to scholarly research? And so there was controversy about that. And the library and Christie's were both, the Vatican library and Christie's were both becoming, 
you know, very sensitive about the way this transaction was looking. And so along those lines, I remember reporting to the nuncio about our progress. Um, during June, we'd been involved in a lot of back and forth negotiations. And so I had lunch with him at his home in Washington, and we chatted about the papyrus. And he was so gracious. And he told me a story about Cardinal Martini. Y'all remember Cardinal Martini that I mentioned to you in Jerusalem? And he said that this whole idea of defending the faith, Cardinal Martini was the Cardinal Archbishop of Milan who had retired to Jerusalem. That's why I met him in Jerusalem. He'd retired to Jerusalem to further his biblical studies and writings. Cardinal Martini, for those who think the name may ring a bell, he was the most frequently mentioned alternative to Joseph Ratzinger when Pope John Paul II died. He was, if you will, he, I mean, various people were forwarded and voted upon in the conclave, but he was one of the ones that were speculated might have become Pope. And so he had not been elected. He was now in Jerusalem pursuing his passion of biblical studies. And after I agreed to move forward with the papyrus, the nuncio told Cardinal Martini about the acquisition. In his earlier years, when Cardinal Martini was obtaining his doctorate, he wrote his thesis on a comparison of one half of this papyrus. I mentioned to you it's Bodmer 14 and 15. He wrote his thesis on Bodmer 14, which contains the Gospel of Luke. And what he did, he compared this with the Codex Vaticanus. Many of you may know the Codex Vaticanus is the oldest full Bible that we have in the world. Cardinal Martini went through every marking of the papyrus, comparing each marking to the Codex Vaticanus. However, when he did his studies, he was not actually allowed to see the papyrus. Instead, he was forced to rely on photographs. They wouldn't allow anybody in the Catholic Church to get into this Swiss library. No one from the church was allowed to get near the papyrus. So he had to rely on photographs. He was unable to see it with his own eyes. And when Archbishop Sambi told him we were going to get this, Cardinal Martini, 82 years old, started to weep. This was the love of his life. Martini commented that after all those years, he was so looking forward to seeing this in person. And that's why he wanted to meet me when I was in Jerusalem. When I saw him in Jerusalem, he'd just returned from Rome, having seen the papyrus, which was the love of his life. And he, we had a wonderful visit together. I was starting to understand when when Archbishop Sambi told me this, some of the importance of this document. This was not just another ancient text. This was the Word of God. And it helped confirm the Word of God upon which the entire church has been premised for 2,000 years. This document, what I realized, but this document was a defense of the faith. And I realized that's why Pope Benedict's so interested. I mean, why is the Pope so worked up about this? He's not a museum collector, but he is interested in defending the faith. There have been a variety of scholars and non-scholars over the years who've sought to diminish the impact uh, and interpretation and content of the words spoken by Jesus Christ. Many have used as a point of origin to, cri to criticize Christianity. They've used as an a point of origin an effort to discredit the historical accuracy of our Holy Scripture. Because the Codex Vaticanus is one of the oldest Bibles in the world, but it only dates back to about the year 300, 325 AD. And because of that, there's been a fair amount of argument that you can't trust a text that came that much later than Jesus Christ. And, you know, there were too many followers of Christ who were continually editing and amending the text prior to 325, and, and thus what we have today is our Bible. It's very questionable whether it's really true. And so this papyrus comes along. It dates anywhere from 100 to 150 years prior to 
the Codex Vaticanus, upon which our Bible is based. And so it becomes so much more significant to the veracity of Holy Scripture. If the theory that Scripture continued to be substantially revised and edited and modified up through the year 325 is true, well, you'd expect to see significant differences between the Bodmer Papyrus and the Codex Vaticanus. If instead, however, any differences between the two were really just minor, tiny things, and if instead there was substantial agreement between the two documents, that's a pretty compelling case that the early church fathers were not continually massaging the message of Christ, but instead were remaining remarkably faithful to it and ensuring a level of accuracy that should be accorded to what they believed to be the word of God. In fact, and you can go, know where I'm going here, what Cardinal Martini and others found was that there is indeed remarkable agreement between the text of the papyrus and the Codex Vaticanus. Now, that agreement doesn't prove there was no amendment at all from the time of Christ's death until the date of the papyrus, but it does say that the message of Christ had been definitively memorialized much sooner than many scholars had maintained, and thus the argument of a continual mutation of his message is cast in doubt. I think the nuncio was already well aware of all of this and this reasoning, but I was coming to it as I met with him. During this whole process, we established a trust that would hold and administer the papyrus within the library. We named it the Mater Verbi Trust. And toward the outset of the project, as I began to sense its gravity and the challenges that might be presented to us, I dedicated the entire effort to the Blessed Virgin Mary. I later heard that when the Vatican learned of the desire to name the trust for the Virgin Mary, they were very pleased. What I didn't know at the time was sometimes the Gospel of Luke, you all may know this because you go to a better school than I went to, the Gospel of Luke is also sometimes referred to as the Gospel of Mary. I didn't know that, but I was heartened to hear of it because since purchasing the papyrus, I've become much more familiar with the Gospel of Luke. I know now why it's also referred to as Mary's Gospel. There are portions of Luke's Gospel that are not found in any of the other Gospels and that can only be attributed to Mary, the Annunciation, the Magnificat, Jesus when he was separated from his parents. We can almost imagine Luke sitting down with Mary toward the end of her life and saying, Mary, we need to sit down and I need to hear these. I need to write these stories down. One could also call Luke's gospel the gospel of the nativity. For while Matthew's gospel does contain an account of Christ's birth, it contains nowhere near the detail of Luke's. And that little detail for me meant a lot. Because my daughter, ever since she was tiny, and even through today, before she could even really understand the Christmas story, she's had an incredible, unusual, and devout devotion to the Christmas mystery. And when she was confirmed, her confirmation name's Nicholas. And she continues this serious devotion. If you go to her Facebook page, she's probably counting down the pages, I mean, the dates to Christmas. She just loves Christmas. And so throughout this process, there was this, and I mentioned these, these details because this is part of discerning, seeing these things that look like coincidences that are not coincidences. They're little, they're little uh, soft whisperings of God when we're being called to something. And there was this, but, but I had this constant mix between the commercial and the spiritual. One of the, one of the most challenge, biggest challenges in going after this thing, this treasure, this wonderful treasure was staying detached. It's a little like Frodo in the Lord of the Rings, you know? You don't want to put, you got to go after the ring. You got to pursue the ring. You don't want to put the ring on. You put the ring on, you got trouble. And so when it came time to actually deliver the papyrus to the, to the Vatican Library, 
Father Spiteri, who works here in the Vatican, he asked whether I wanted to accompany them to Switzerland to take delivery of the actual documents. And there was a side of me that desperately wanted to go. But, but you know, I realized there were people from the Vatican who were much more qualified to manage the logistics. And so I said, no, they've dedicated their lives to this. Let them, let them go do it. I felt it'd be an unnecessary intrusion. I later learned the process was quite interesting when they transported this thing. It actually played out like a great James Bond adventure. The transaction took place in Switzerland in the Apostolic Nunciature, basically the Vatican's diplomatic house in Bern, Switzerland. That night, while the papyrus was in the Nunciature, the Swiss Army surrounded the Nunciature with, with machine guns. The, the next day, they accompanied it to the airport, closed down the airport in Bern, and loaded it on the plane. When it landed in Rome, they put it on a different runway, and they sent the police out, and they transported it via armed guard with helicopter overhead all the way from the Rome airport to the Vatican, and then drove it down you know, into the Vatican and put it down in the vault. And so that's the way this thing was being treated. Uh, fittingly, the actual purchase of the papyrus and the transfer took place on November 21st, which is the feast of the presentation of Mary. Yet again, another connection to the mater verbi, the mother of the word. And we're, we were told that the library wanted to make a formal presentation of the papyrus to the Holy Father on, on a Monday, and that they'd like for us to be present. And so our first meeting, we went to this we went to the library. We met with Father Larry Spiteri, who works at the library, and Archbishop Farina. Uh, he, was, he was now in charge of the library. And we met him at Saturday, on a Saturday night. We're going to see the Pope on Monday morning. The Vatican Library is closed on Saturday, uh, Sunday. They said, why don't you come by Saturday night? So we go to St. Anne's Gate. For those of you who have been in Rome, that's the one. If you're looking at St. Peter's over on the right, we went in St. Anne's Gate. The library is going to be closed, but of course we wanted to see it. And so. Uh, you know, we wanted to see the Codex Vaticanus. I'd heard that was in the vault. I thought that would be a cool thing to see, you know. And I wanted to see the oldest Bible in the world and then see the papyrus that helped authenticate the oldest Bible in the world. So we were greeted by, by uh, Archbishop Farina. He said, you know what's really interesting in Rome, and some of you have seen this, it's incredible how many of our priests, whether they be priests, bishops, cardinals, are gracious, warm, wonderful people. Not all of them, they're all humans, and they have their failings, but Archbishop Friend is just a delightful man. He gave us a wonderful tour of the library, a part that's not, a, it's not generally open to the public. It's, it's usually reserved for scholars. We meandered all around, and he's showing me everything because he's very proud of it. And I'm kind of wondering, when are we going to see the crown jewels? I mean, this is all very interesting stuff, but it's Saturday night, we got jet lag, and when are we going to see it? But I'm being polite. And after a while, we found ourselves in a long hall filled with desks. It looked a little bit like a lecture hall, and we followed him, and he goes down toward the lectern at the front of the hall, and then he goes down these stairs. And we're going down this hall and some stairs, and then we go through another musty hallway, and then we go toward a huge door. He's got keys for that. We go into that door, then we go to another vault. It's all, it all looks kind of pre-World War II industrial. I mean, very like a bomb shelter or something. Nothing glitzy about it, really, once you get down there. I don't know how many doors and locks and vaults we went through, but in, and, and, and alarms, and he's turning them all on and everything. So anyway, we finally get in to where they have the most valuable of the manuscripts. This is the stuff Dan Brown writes about. I don't think he's ever been down there, but he writes about it in Da Vinci Code, right? <laughs> so, and within that inner room, they've got, they've got shelves up and all the most important manuscripts. And Archbishop Friend gets in and he's pulling stuff off. And he said, this is Virgil's Aeneid. And this is, you know, copy this. And, and I said, can we see the Codex Vaticanus? He said, of course. So he brings out the Codex Vaticanus, the oldest Bible in the world, and they've, they've got it all separated in pages. So every page is on its own shelf in, down there in the vault. 
So, uh, you know, as opposed to a book that you're opening and it's falling apart and all that. So he brings out a page of that, and we see that. And it's very impressive. The pages are really large, and the script on them is very impressive. Each page is stored individually so they can preserve them. And, you know, I'd resisted asking to see the papyrus, but upon, you know, after we saw the codex, uh, Farina said, well, do you want to see the papyrus? I'm like, yeah. So, so you know, uh, so he brings out the papyrus. It's stored in three wooden boxes. The boxes are about this big. And each one, each leaf of the papyrus is, is between two pieces of glass, like a microscopic slide, you know, so that, it, so that it's preserved because there are fragments of them. So some of them, it's, it's the whole piece. You know, keep in mind, we're talking about stuff that's almost 2,000 years old. Some of them, they put, put it back together, but it's, it's very fragile. So they put them between glass, and then they slide them into these slots in these cabinets. So, uh, so he had these, these three boxes, and... Um, you know, the next moment, as we looked at this papyrus, this is the thing that kind of will live in Hannah family history forever. I hope my, grand, my great-grandkids tell this story. Um, he pulled out one of the leaves of the papyrus. This is the first time we'd seen it. And, you know, like a lot of old paper, it's kind of an amber color. Um, you know, sort of a faded brownish, goldish amber color. And... Uh, but he, as he, so he pulled that out, and then he, this wasn't, he didn't, he's just pulling it out to show us. He's pretty casual about it all. He's pulling it out, and he held it up in the light. And when it hit the light, it's a very old piece of paper. When it hit the light, it just glowed. I mean, it just lit up like golden, you know? And Father Spateri's standing behind us, and just kind of to himself, Father Spateri says, there it is, the Word of God. And I thought, Wow. Wow, look at it. It's, a, it's glowing. I'm not trying to say it was a miracle or anything. It wasn't a miracle. It was just the light shining through it. But it's glowing. And I thought, tears welled up in my eyes. I thought, yeah, there it is. The Word of God. You know, we, we think about the Indiana Jones movies and the things like that that happen. There it is, the Word of God. But, you know, it's interesting. In, the, in moments of transcendence, especially if we can kind of feel... Uh, maybe a little bit proud of ourselves because we, we had something good happen. God has this way of keeping us uh, rooted to the ground. And so, and I'm obsessive compulsive and always worried about something going wrong. So while Archbishop Friend is holding that thing up, I've noticed on the table over here is the rest of the box that holds all the, the manuscript in it, right? And if this is the edge of the table, there's a lid on the box that folds down. So the lid is hanging over the edge of the table. And I'm thinking, while we're all looking at this thing, if anybody sort of slides by, they'll, they'll hit the, the thing, and then the whole box goes over, and it's all glass, and it'll all shred every papyrus that's in there. So being the good obsessive compulsive I am, um, I thought, you know what, I'm going to just close the lid. I'm not going to say, hey, Archbishop Farina, why are you being careless with the papyrus? I'm going to just go close the lid and, and be okay. So I go over to close the lid, and I don't realize that it's, that, that it's a spring loaded on the, on the lid. So I go to close the lid, and bam, you know, it just, it just smacks shut. And they're looking at the papyrus, and everybody's over there, my wife and daughter, and everybody's looking. And I don't know, I don't know why they didn't hear that. It was really loud, but I guess they're capturing the moment, and I'm thinking... I just shattered all of them. I just, I just right there, you know. And I, 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 I mean, you know, it's funny how things go through your head. And I'm thinking, you know, it made it 2,000 years. It made it through. 
the Muslim invasions, um, you know, <laughs> desert storms, it's been in a cave, it's been in jars, peasants transporting it all over the place. And I've been here for two minutes and I may have, <laughs> I may have just destroyed it all. And, and I'll be honest with you, I didn't say anything. I just, <laughs> I just thought, okay, if it is, we'll deal with it later. <laughs> Because there's not a lot, if, if, if I just messed it all up, there's not a lot we can do tonight. And so, um, fortunately, I did ask Father Spiteri the next morning, is everything fine? Have y'all looked at, you know, all the, uh, um, and, it, and it was. But, you know, it's re it is really interesting. And I think we need to keep in mind how God can keep our, keep our feet rooted to the ground and realize hey, we're just human instruments. We make mistakes all the time. I mean, I'm lucky that it didn't happen, but it might have happened. I mean, we, we make silly mistakes all the time, and somehow God gets us through it. You know, the day we were to meet the Holy Father started with the holiest of holies, right? Father Spiteri arranged for us to have Mass at 8 a.m. that morning in the Clementina Chapel. Y'all know where the Clementina Chapel is? It's downstairs under St. Peter's, and it backs right up to where St. Peter is buried. You can't get any closer to St. Peter and his bones than in the Clementina Chapel. For centuries, the church maintained that the Basilica of St. Peter had been built over Peter's tomb. However, for most of that history, there had been no hard evidence of the fact. It was only in the middle of the 20th century that archaeologists found that evidence, that indeed Peter had been buried directly underneath the altar and the cupola of the church. And that's where the Clementina Chapel is. And so we're backing right up to Peter. And both the moment of seeing the papyrus and the moment of greeting the Holy Father later that day, they were both the kind of things, you know, it's interesting, moments that are filled with joy. They're not necessarily, it's not like going to a football game, but they're just moments filled with joy. So we got to meet Pope Benedict. We presented the papyrus to him, bent to kiss his ring, and my daughter, my daughter greeted him. We said a few things to him. One of the things you notice about the Pope when you see him in person, how bright his blue eyes are. They're like the eyes of a teenager. And he's like, what is he, 84 now, 83, 84. And he's, he's, he's so alive, and he listens to what you're saying when you're with him. He's with you. I've noticed that about holy people. When they're with you, they are with you. They're not looking to who's past you. And I told him how grateful we were to him. I told him about how special the, gospel, the gospels were to us, how special the liturgy was to us. If any of you have read The Spirit of the Liturgy by Pope Benedict, it's just a delightful, wonderful book about the liturgy, and I told him how that had inspired me to do this. Um, and, and we told him we were praying for him all the time and we're thankful to him. And he commented about how beautiful the liturgy is and how important the papyrus was for the life of the church and how grateful he was. It was just a, a wonderful meeting that we were able to have to him. Cardinal Tehran opened a ceremony, we had a ceremony. But the really cool thing is that the Pope was very gracious in his remarks and thanked our family and, and all of those involved. What was neat though, was when it came time for the presentation of the papyrus to the Pope. And this was another one of those wonderful moments. Interestingly enough, yeah, the Pope, when, when it came time, we had the ceremony, and then they bring out the papyrus to him for him to see it. And he stood with glee as they brought it to him. He's like a kid on Christmas morning. He turned to his secretary and said, where are my glasses? He gets his glasses out, right? And they bring them out to him, and he starts pouring over the papyrus. And it became evident to all of us, this guy can read Koine Greek. Koine is an ancient form of Greek. This guy can read Koine Greek, okay? So he's reading them, and he's reading this page. He's reading the page where the Gospel of Luke ends and the Gospel of John begins. Now this page has historical significance for it demonstrates that even at an early date, the Gospels were being put together in the order in which we now receive them. 
you know, with Luke and then John. It also has special significance for this particular pope, for it contained the prologue to the Gospel of John, which is dedicated to the logos, the truth of Jesus Christ. In a way, that's a concept that, Bened that Pope Benedict focused his whole pontificate around. And then the Holy Father did the unexpected. It, he starts to read it, the prologue to the Gospel of John, so sotto voce, really to himself. And I thought to myself, you know, I couldn't have received a better gift than this. This is, I could die and go to heaven now. And I whispered to my daughter, I said, baby, do you know what he's reading? She said, yeah, I know what he's reading, Daddy. In the first grade, I made it a point of driving my daughter to school every day. In the first grade, we learned the guardian angel prayer. On the way to school, you know, we'd say it together. Y'all, many of you may know it. You know, angel of God, my guardian dear, to whom God's love commits me here. Ever this day be at my side to lighten the guard, to rule and to guide. Amen. I still say it every time I leave the garage. And so, you know, she got a little bit older, and we learned the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, right? She got a little bit older, and we learned the 27th Psalm, which was very difficult for me because my memory was getting bad, and that was a long one. But we learned the 27th Psalm. And then around the ninth grade, I thought, well, we've been learning Psalms. I said, kiddo, why don't we learn the prologue to the Gospel of John? And so, you know, that's what we'd been saying to one another, line by line, alternating over the last several years. And now here we stood. Guess how, what wonderful charm God has. Here we stood, side by side, me and my little girl, listening to the Vicar of Christ read it aloud in Koine Greek from the oldest copy of it in the world. How exquisite. And she thought so too. She just had a grin on her face. In fact, there's a picture. I, I, I meant to bring it to be able to show y'all, but the picture that ran in L'Osservatore Romano, the paper, has her sort of with a little grin on her face because that's when he's reading um, from this. And we both, we both just smiled while he read it. It was such a wonderful moment. There was a luncheon afterwards that Cardinal Bertoni, the Secretary of State, hosted for us. After Cardinal Turan made a nice toast, I felt compelled to acknowledge his comments, and I rose to thank the people surrounding the table for the wonderful privilege. And I do mean that. Our families had this incredible privilege of being involved with this. I told them we were the ones who'd been given the gift, and that we were grateful to them, and it was a treasure we'd always carry in our hearts. And then I took a little bit of a risk, because we're sitting at a table with, with uh, uh, three cardinals and a couple of bishops and all of this, you know, right outside of the Vatican. Um, but, you know, I, I, I figured I could take the risk. I explained to them how wonderful it had been to see the Holy Father reading from the prologue to the Gospel of John. And I told them about the story with Elizabeth, that for the last several years we would recite it to one another. I then said, Elizabeth was not expecting this, but would she please stand up? So she stood up in front of these men. There were about 20 of us there. And uh, I started knowing she'd be able to join in with me. I said, Elizabeth, in the beginning was the Word. And she said, and the Word was with God. And I responded, and the Word was God. And we went back and forth. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness shall not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for a testimony and to bear witness to the light. He was not the light, but came to bear witness to the light, so that all might believe through him. The true light that enlightens every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world knew him not. He came to his own home, and his own people received him not. But to all who received him, who believed in the power of his name, 
He gave the power to become children of God who were born not of the flesh, nor of the blood, nor of the will of man, but of God. I'm so grateful for the moment that we had being able to recite the word of God in that setting with my daughter and to share our joy with those assembled with us was a gift I'll always remember. And so back to thinking about the tomb that I mentioned at the beginning of my talk. We Christians believe that at some point on Easter morning at that very tomb, Christ swung his legs around and he planted his feet on the, on the floor and he rose. There are crusaders buried in that church of the Holy Sepulchre with no names on their graves. Because in their humility, they didn't want their own graves marked in the presence of the tomb of Christ. While our Christian faith is one that relies on the spiritual nature of man, it's also one that embraces our corporal nature. We're spiritual, but we live in this physical world. And thus, physical evidence of that which happened is important. Defending that physical evidence is important. The physical evidence is not a substitute for our faith, but it can enhance our faith. We cannot prove that Jesus was God-made man, but we have a lot of proof that Jesus was a real man and that many people thought he was God and were willing to die for that belief. And the better preserved is our record of those events, the better for all of us in our faith. And the modern verbi papyrus helps us to preserve that record. When we cling to those records, it's like clinging to photographs of a loved one. It's part of what makes us human. This adventure was the beginning of a defense of the faith that continues for me and my family. I've traveled around the globe speaking of the papyrus to people, Christian, Jews, atheists. It's interesting how many people are interested just in the archaeological record. One little boy in my parish is named Evan because his mother heard the story, and Evan is Welsh for John, and she liked the story, and she said, well, we're going to name him Evan for that. The Holy Father had a synod on the word a year and a half ago, and at that synod, he presented all the bishops and cardinals who came from around the world with two replicas, one of the Lord's Prayer and one of the prologue to the Gospel of John. A bishop in Romania gave his copy of that replica of this papyrus to his counterpart in the Orthodox Church in Romania because they'd been having a lot of arguments between one another. And when he did that, it helped to enhance what had been a really difficult relationship up to that point. So in the end, when we defend our faith, we have a chance to build our lives on rock rather than sand. You know what Pope Benedict said about a year and a half ago regarding the financial crisis, and I'm going to end with this because it, it actually has applicability here. He said there are orders of reality. He said the first order of reality is when we build our houses on rock, and the second order is sand. He said financial and material goods are sand. They're not inherently bad, but they're not the first order of reality. The first order of reality is the Word of God. And what is the Word of God? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word of God is God. When we defend the Word of God, which we all have the chance to do, we not only defend the faith, we defend God himself. I really, as I mentioned at the beginning, I really want to thank you all for letting me be here with you tonight. I'd like for us all to pray that we'll have what Pope Benedict says we all want to have, that we'll have listening hearts. We don't know when these kinds of chances will fall out of the sky. I'm just a business guy in Atlanta who got called by a secular Jew in Long Island who does real estate deals. Okay? But if we have listening hearts, we'll be open to these opportunities that we'll have in the future to defend our faith. So again, I'll take a few questions, but thanks so much for your wonderful attention and your reception and the witness that all of you are giving to the church. Thank you.